Hi, my name is Brian Magner. I work in the tech booth here at King's Cross. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Morning, King's Cross. <clears throat> Glad that you are here. If we haven't met, my name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are brand new, welcome. Uh, we are especially glad that you've joined us this morning. I hope maybe uh, at some point during the service you'll fill out a connection card that's there in the seat back in front of you and maybe drop it in the box between the doors there. Or if you stop by the welcome desk, we'd love to just say hello and meet you. If we haven't met, uh, I'd love it if you'd come up to me after the service to just introduce yourself. Uh, just met somebody after the first service who's been visiting for a couple of times, but I hadn't met him yet. And so if that's you, um, come say hello. We are <clears throat> working our way through the Bible this year, uh, and we have arrived at the rise of King David. <clears throat> we did a whole sermon series back in 2020 on the life of David. And so if you want to dive a little deeper into David, you can find that online. I was looking this week to see uh, how much of that was interrupted by COVID, and it turned out that it was the last message in the series on David was the first week that we didn't meet because of COVID, and so um, a little PTSD from that, but we, we got through it, and uh, that's on the website if you want to go a little bit deeper. But this morning, what we're going to focus in on is probably the most well-known moment or story in the life of David. Last week, we saw Israel's first king, a man named Saul, was raised up after the people went to the prophet Samuel and they demanded a king. They wanted to be like the other countries. And Samuel told them, that's not going to go very well. But they didn't listen to him. They were adamant. And then after Saul's king, uh, after Saul becomes king, it turns out that he didn't listen to the words of God's prophet either. And so God rejected him as king. And so as the story continues this morning, Samuel has been sent to find the king chosen not by the people, but by God himself. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1 is where we'll begin. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Jesse, by the way, is the grandson of Ruth, whose story we saw two weeks ago as Dr. Hook uh, walked us through that book. If you remember uh, from last week, or if maybe you've been reading along in our devotional plan in the opening chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, the people chose Saul because he was literally tall, rich, and good-looking. And so as he is rejected, Samuel gets sent to the house of Jesse to find God's king. And you're thinking as you're reading along, oh, I bet Samuel's going to do a better job at this you know, whole find a king thing. Jesse comes out, he meets Samuel, and Samuel says, why don't you go get your boys and, and bring them to us? You know, Among them is God's king. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 16. It says, when they, this, uh, Jesse and his sons, came, Samuel looked on Eliab. Eliab was the oldest. And thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. Evidently, he was a pretty good-looking young man. Or the height of his stature. He was tall. So here we are again. Samuel looks at a tall, good-looking guy and thinks, well, this, this has got to be him. 
And, and he's trying to look at kings the same way the people did. But God says, I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so they start this parade of Jesse's sons in front of Samuel. You know, bring me the next one. Bring me the next one. And one after one after one, God rejects all of them. And finally, Samuel basically says to Jesse, you got any more kids? Like, have you forgot? Is there anybody maybe you've forgotten to, to bring out? Because, you know, the, the, these guys, these aren't the ones. And uh, in verse 11, Jesse says, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he, he's keeping sheep. I mean, technically I have another son, but you're not looking for him. He, we got him out. You know. Samuel says, well, why don't you go get him and uh, bring him and, and we'll take a look this son who's the youngest of seven, who's an afterthought. He's been given the lowliest, loneliest, least desirable job. Verse 12, Samuel the prophet meets David the future king for the first time. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Sometimes in the course of my study, I'll find some things that I just feel like I can't get past the sermon without sharing with you because they're, they're so good. And this is one of those this morning. Um, C.H. Gordon just makes an awesome, godly observation in his book called The Common Background of Greek and Hebrew Civilizations. He says this about the ancient Near East. Uh, he says in the ancient Near East, quote, red, actually reddish brown, is the color appropriate for men. And two of the most heroic men of the Old Testament, Esau and David, are described as naturally red, showing that they were born to be heroes. So I just think that's awesome, you know? So you just do with that whatever you like. Uh, but I thought it was great. <laughs> so here's the... Uh, here's the real point. Um, David is a king that no one, not even his own father, would have chosen. No one except God looked at David and saw a king. Fast forward to 1 Samuel 17, the next chapter. You find the Philistines have gathered for battle against Israel. They're on uh, a hilltop over here, and Israel's on a hilltop over here, and there's this valley in between. If you don't know anything about the Philistine culture, they were experts at metallurgy, and archaeologists have found all kinds of things in the way that their civilization was very advanced in that. They were expertly trained in military tactics on both land and sea, and evidently they were fans of single combat. And so if you know anything about some history, there are these times when Two armies are going to face off, and rather than, you know, thousands and thousands of people dying, I tell you what, we'll pick our best guy, and you pick your best guy, and they'll fight it out. Winner takes all. That's what's happening here, 1 Samuel 17, verses 4 to 7. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, that's about nine foot six or nine foot nine, so unusual in the history of humanity, but, but not like mythically impossible by any stretch. Verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, 
And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of just the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is about 126 pounds. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head, just a head alone, weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is about 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him. Verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed, greatly afraid. And they should have been. Goliath was bigger than all of them by a lot. He's better armed than them. He's better armored than they are. He's part of an army that is better trained and more experienced than Israel's army. Verse 16 says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. There's not a man in Israel who can defeat Goliath, and they know it. Even if this is your first time ever stepping foot in a church, and if it is, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I hope you'll, you'll keep coming back. But my guess is... If you have no religious background at all, you know the story of David and Goliath. Who who volunteers to fight Goliath? David. That's not a trick. You just, you know. And who wins? David, right? In the unfolding mystery of God's sovereign plan to redeem and restore all things, here's the layer that we peel back this morning in our journey through the story. It's this biblical truth that I put in your notes. And then in the rise of David, we see a king we wouldn't choose conquer an enemy we couldn't defeat. A king we wouldn't choose conquers an enemy that we couldn't defeat. Let me show you six pictures of King Jesus in this story about the rise of King David and why I think it still matters to you 3,000 years after these things happen. First, in the rise of David, we see a king sent by his father to save his brothers. Just on the surface of it, he's sent by his father to serve his brothers. David, we think, is less than 20 years old because that would have been the typical age of military service And he's not out at the battlefield with the rest of the Israelites. And yet he was old enough, evidently, that he could travel by himself. And so he's probably somewhere in his late teens. And his father sends him to the battlefield, 1 Samuel 17, verses 17 and 18. Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Take also these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well. Bring some token from them. As a total aside, to get off my manuscript a little bit, if the Lord ever prompts you to bring a cheese plate and baguettes to the church, you come on, okay? You just, it's biblical. So, you know, um, his father sends him to the battlefield to serve his brothers. You get to the New Testament. You're going to hear Jesus say, I came not to be served, but to serve. 
He's going to say, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. In the Gospel of John alone, just that one book, Jesus refers to himself as someone sent by God the Father 41 times. He is sent by his Father to serve. Second, in the rise of David, we see a king passionate for God's people. He's passionate for God's people. He takes these grocery supplies out to the battlefield. Evidently, he's there during one of these either morning or evening sessions when Goliath comes out and challenges Israel. And he's looking around, if you read through the story, and he sees fear in the ranks of the army, and he hears them talking about these financial incentives that if this person, you know, if someone will go out and fight, and if he wins, we'll, we'll give him riches from the king. David's motivation is not going to be riches. His motivation is going to be a passion for God and for the people of God. 1 Samuel 17, 26, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He basically says, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You have to pay someone to do this? Have you gone mad? Like, have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten who you serve? Who is this guy compared to the God of the armies of Israel? What are you talking about? He's passionate. He doesn't like what he's seeing among the people of God and the way that his God is being defied. Jesus, too, is a man who's passionate for God and for the people of God. You see this all through the New Testament. Just one example, Matthew 23 is a great chapter if you want to get a window into this facet of who God is. You go read that later on this afternoon. But it is a blistering takedown of the scribes and Pharisees who were using the people of God and misleading the people of God and neglecting the people of God. I'll give you just a sample of the way that Jesus' holy and righteous passion is welled up in him when he sees this. It says in verse 13 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 15 of that same chapter, hypocrites! You travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. In verse 16, he calls them blind guides. In verse 25, he says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, outwardly you appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead men's bones. He says, you brood of viper, you serpents, how will you ever escape the sentence of hell? Jesus was passionate for God's people. He's passionate for God. Now, he's patient with people who are far from God. 
He, he was tender with people who were hurting. He was intentional with the oppressed and the marginalized. But he would not abide those who would seek to defy his father or malign or oppress his father's people. He was passionate for God's people. Third, in the rise of David, we see a king who has prepared God's way. Prepared God's way. David basically raises his hand. He says, I'll fight him. In verse 33 of chapter 17, Saul basically says, uh, settle down there, Sparky. Uh, my paraphrase. Um, <laughs> this guy's been a warrior longer than you've been alive. Why don't you sit down? David responds to King Saul's dismissal. Verses 34 to 37, David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, which, if you're following along in the story, was like this morning. <laughs> it's like, I, I, well, I used to do this. Yeah, but like you, just before your dad sent you to bring lunch to your brothers, you know. He used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, the Lord be with you. Verse 40, David took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch and his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Everyone else ignored David. God saw him. Everyone else overlooked David, but God was equipping him. Everyone else saw shepherding as an entry-level, afterthought type of job. But God was using that season in David's life to prepare him for a purpose far greater than David could ever see. God was using that time in the pasture to teach David patience, to make David courageous, to build up his strength, to develop his skill, to cultivate his character. David's time in his father's pasture was not wasted. It was preparatory. Can I just encourage you that if you're somebody who's in a season of life where you feel overlooked, where you worry that maybe your time is being wasted, if it feels to you like you're out in some metaphorical field all by yourself being ignored, God sees you, and he is preparing you. He's cultivating your heart. He's developing you for something far greater than you could possibly imagine in your life. I preach a whole sermon series on that. I won't do it this morning. But did you know that Jesus was roughly 30 years old before he began his public ministry? And when he began it, People didn't think much of him. 
People didn't think he had the right resume. They didn't think he was prepared to do the things that he was saying that God had sent him to do. Isaiah 53 tells us there wasn't anything about him that was beautiful or attractive in his outward appearance. Nobody was particularly drawn to the way he looked, unlike both Saul and David and Eliab. People would mock him when he first began public ministry. They'd say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's boy? Like, man, we know his family. We get, get out of here. Surely you're not bringing us the word of God. Yet at his baptism, the beginning of his public ministry, God the Father speaks audibly and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's already prepared. He already has my approval. He's just done it my way, not the way you think it should have looked. Once his ministry started, people didn't like that very much either. He wasn't nearly legalistic enough for the establishment. He was far too religious for the masses. He wasn't nearly militant enough for Hebrew nationalists, but he's far too revolutionary for Rome. And yet, God the Son had been perfectly, uniquely prepared by God the Father in God's way to carry out God's mission at God's time as God's chosen king. He was just prepared God's way, not the world's way. Fourth, in the rise of David, we see a king who was zealous for God's glory. Zealous for God's glory. David strides out into the valley. He's got nothing but a sling. There's some stones that he found in the brook. Goliath predictably mocks him. And then Goliath mocks Israel for even sending him out. It's almost offensive to Goliath. They send out this boy to fight him. 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47, David responds to the mocking. He says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly, all my fellow Israelites who are standing back cowering on the hilltop, that they might know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David is zealous for the glory of God, the glory of Israel. The first miracle Jesus did was he turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. But immediately after that, the Apostle John records Jesus' visit to the temple complex. And it says in John 2 that when Jesus gets there, he finds those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered 
that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's the first time they thought, wait a minute, something about this guy that maybe the prophets of old wrote about. That's the opening bookend of Jesus' public ministry in the book of John, if you will. You get to the end, and and right before the crucifixion, John records a prayer in chapter 17 of his gospel that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the opening lines of this extended prayer to his Father, Jesus prays in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus' zeal for God's glory runs quite literally from the beginning to the end of everything that he does. He's zealous to see his father glorified and to show people his father's glory in his own life and ministry. Fifth, in the rise of David, we see a king who defeats our greatest enemy. King who defeats our greatest enemy. Many of you know the story. All it took was one stone from David's sling. 1 Samuel 17, 48 and 49. When the Philistine arose and came out and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. And David put his hand in the bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And the king that Israel would have never chosen conquers the enemy they could have never defeated in one decisive act. Three great enemies threaten you and I every day. Satan, who hates you because you bear the image of God and he hates God's image in you. It's this church because we believe and teach and preach the word of God. He hates your marriage because he knows that it's a picture of Christ's love for the church. And every, everything in your life that you put under the submission of the lordship of Christ, Satan attacks and hates and wants to tear down, not because of you, but because of who it represents. And sin, just when we cooperate, with Satan and defiance of God and death. Satan's greatest triumph, but more importantly, the right and just punishment for our rebellion against God. Romans says the wages of sin are death, Satan's sin and death. They threaten us every single day. This is why the gospel is so precious to us. Because we understand that by living the perfect life that we should have lived but haven't, by dying the death that we deserve in our place for our sins, Jesus became an atoning sacrifice for our sin. He took our sin in himself. He took the death sentence that was hanging over us. My sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. In rising from the dead on the third day, Jesus defeated death, removing forever its threat to snuff us out and make us no more. 
The only power now that death has for the Christian is that it ushers us into the presence of our king and the eternal reward that he has prepared for us. That's the only threat that it has in our lives. By ascending and sitting down at the right hand of his father, from where one day he will be once again sent to serve. Revelation 20 says, when he returns... Although Satan is already defeated, he will then once and for all be put away forever and cast into the lake of fire and sulfur. And Satan, sin, and death, the greatest enemies of God's people, have already been defeated. Friend, your greatest enemy is not sickness or disease. It is not being single or being single again. It is not Washington or Hollywood or disapproval or disappointment. It is not unemployment or underemployment. It is not your to-do list or the lack of time, resources, or skill that you have to have to start checking things off. Your greatest enemy is anything that separates you from God your Father. That's your enemy. And in King Jesus, God the Father has made a way by His grace through faith in Christ for us to be reconciled and forgiven and for us to receive eternal life because a king that you would not choose apart from God's grace and the Holy Spirit's work in your life has conquered an enemy that you could never defeat on your own. That's the gospel and it's so precious to us. And because that has happened, because King Jesus has conquered You and I can now receive the benefits of his victory the way Israel received the benefits of David's. This last one, in the rise of David, we see a king who transforms hearts and lives. A king who transforms hearts and lives. David slays Goliath. The Philistine army flees. They break into retreat. 1 Samuel 17, 52 and 53 say the men of Israel and Judah rose with a great shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and plundered the camp. For 40 days, morning and night, they trembled. They cowered. They despaired for their very lives. No more. No more. In verse 52, their hearts swell with inspiration and courage, and they boldly chase after an enemy that just moments before had them terrorized to even enter the fight. And in verse 53, their lives are transformed as they come back and plunder the camp. 1 Samuel 17 is not about how a plucky underdog can win the big game. It is not about how if you take up a stone of faith, you can slay the giants in your own life. It's not about that. It's about how the victory of one man anointed by God to serve as king results in salvation and blessing for all God's people. That's the story we see in the rise of King David. You are not David in the story. You are Israel. But rejoice because Israel gets to share in the victory and the blessings of the king. If you are a Christian or if you're someone who becomes a Christian, 
The reason that cancer can't steal your joy is because your king has already defeated death. The reason divorce isn't the end of your story is because your king has promised that he'll never leave you. The reason that bullies at school don't drive you to despair is because the only one whose opinion really matters has already looked at you and called you his own. The point is not that with your awesome faith, you can slay every giant that comes into your life. The point is that none of those things seem quite as big when you see that the giants have already been slain by Jesus. David is not going to write, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for I am with me, and I am awesome, and doggone it, people like me. He went down into the valley, and he said, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because you are with me. And your rod and your staff bring me comfort, not my rod and my staff. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The song says, look full in his wonderful face. The things of this world become strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Do you know King Jesus like that? Has his victory transformed your heart and your life like that? Why don't we reflect together in a time of response? Bow your head if you would. If you're already a Christian... I wonder if maybe you can look back and think about times in your life where Jesus has already given you victory, where he's already proven himself strong on your behalf, where the blessings of what he has done have already come into your life. And maybe you just need a fresh reminder of those things because sometimes you forget and you just need to remember and thank God in this moment, silently, just right where you are. Just thank him for the blessings and the joy that are yours because of him. Or maybe you think about where you are right now. Are there places in your life where you're trying to be the hero? Where you're trying to be the one who slays the giants? where you're trying to be the one who gets the victory in your strength because of your skill. And maybe you just need to confess that to God and ask for his forgiveness. And remember that your blessing, that your victory, that your overcoming comes because of what Jesus has already done on your behalf. Or maybe, maybe you look to the future and you know there's a battle coming and it terrifies you. And it's, it's so scary. You don't even want to wade out into the valley to even be in the battle. And you're frozen with fear. 
Maybe you need a fresh reminder this morning that Jesus has already gone before you. That nothing and no one is going to snatch you out of his hand. That he's numbered the days of your life. He's numbered the hairs on your head. There's no reason for you to be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own. You just need to remember that he's overcome the greatest threats there could ever be against you. If you're not Christian yet, what if, what if your life could be transformed like this? If maybe for the first time this morning you understood that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about self-help. It's about receiving the blessings of one who has done everything necessary for your salvation. God wants to transform your heart and then transform your life as he conforms you into the image of the one who died that you might live. And maybe right where you are, you seem to pray and ask God to forgive you, maybe for the very first time. Not based on anything you've done, but because you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary. And just acknowledge that to him. Ask him to help you see what it's like to live a life transformed by the victory of Christ over Satan's sin and death. Father, we read these things and we rejoice. We're amazed. We wonder at how it is that such a mighty picture of our king could be shown to us in such a humble, small young man like David. Thank you that you saw fit to give us stories to help us understand your heart. Thank you that in your grace you saw fit to give us a king that we might be with you. Would you help us to reflect and to remind ourselves of what it is that you've done that we might rejoice as those who've been called by your name in which we pray. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.